Hello and welcome to the Curious Cult podcast. I'm your obsessively curious host, Nick Harrod-Ambers, and today I am excited to be talking to Musi Maimane about his curiosity. Born in Soweto, Musi is a South African politician and the former leader of the DA, the main opposition party in South Africa. He speaks eight of South Africa's 11 national languages and is a pastor and leader in the Liberty Church. He has a master's degree in economics and theology and is currently reading for his PhD in economic development in local government. What an episode we are ready for. The first question that I have is, were you a curious child? Yeah, I I, I grew up in Soweto, right at the height of apartheid in some ways, in the most violent period in our nation. But what was always fascinating to me was how I always sought to say beyond, it's not that I was interested in politics necessarily, but I always was fascinated about learning about different things. I had this Catholic nun who permanently wanted to challenge our thinking. And so I guess in some ways, whether it was a conscious sense of curiosity or just we, she wouldn't let us live without questioning things. And I, I, funny enough, even as a child, was obsessed about this idea about race. And it sounds a very complicated thing, but I'd never seen white people. So even at the beginning, I'd ask questions like, so do white people not feel the cold as a question of interest? Like, because I was always fascinated that the Catholic priests that were with us had always had short sleeve shirts. So I thought, that's fascinating. And then I got very deeply understanding as to what Catholicism mean and what it would mean around in that space. So I guess as a child, I'd never, I'll never forget as part of my primary school report card, I can't remember which grade it was, the headmistress wrote in there, Musi has a critical mind. And because English wasn't my first language, the only time I'd heard the word critical was when someone goes into hospital that they are critically ill. I remember that disturbing me for days. I thought to myself, <laughs> I thought my mind was perfectly healthy. To discover it's critical is quite worrying. <laughs> that is great. Uh, it's a very interesting place for curiosity to come from, from a nun. What kinds of things would she prompt you to be curious about? Because I also went to a Catholic school and right. curiosity was not top of the list for the brothers. Yeah, yeah. no, no, no. I, I think she was a very strong... And I can only put labels to it retrospectively, perhaps more black conscious. And she asked us very centrally to be proud of who we are and therefore to begin to interrogate things, to begin to, I guess maybe for her it was a sense at which our minds were as powerful as anyone else's, regardless of race at the time, regardless of where we're coming from. And I think she, she drove that in us and, and, and forced us to move beyond curriculum, move beyond... She had a basic rule, you don't have a choice, you can't come to school. She'd say to me, Musi, you can't come to school tomorrow having not read the newspaper, it's an argument. Mm-hmm. And even though I grew up to, to parents who themselves had not had that discipline, didn't have a great education, my mother didn't finish high school, there was a lot of issues that said to us, you, you need to think further about this issue, you need to you need to know what's going on all the time and question what's going on at the time. And I think she wanted to instill in us a sense of pride about who we are. And part of that was to say, you don't accept things as they are. 
it's an incredible lesson to teach uh, a young child to be proud of yourself and then that unlocks your mind yeah. a lot of what I deal with and, and researching has to do with ego and a lot of big businesses are scared to be curious and to test stuff because it goes against what they currently do so yeah. their ego protects them from looking at something new in case it screws up what they have so it's an incredible gift that she gave you at that young age to go just be proud of who you are and think just think yeah and I mean, you would be very well averse to the idea of the imposter syndrome, the, the, the idea that I'm just any given day about to be found out. Yeah. And I think the gift in that was to say, you just keep pursuing this for your own self. And, and some of it had a deep sense of spirituality to it, to say that spirituality, the opposite of faith, at least in a basic sense, is certainty, right? Like, it's not doubt, it's not questioning, it's just certainty. And to say that if you want to be on a journey of faith, it's a journey of uncertainty. It's the idea that it's the irrational man who is certain, that in fact you need to get to a point where you've got to keep interrogating and walking on water. I think that's the sense of what, if I would define what makes one curious, is to understand that Perhaps you might be right, perhaps you might be wrong, but be willing to explore it anyways. And I think later on in my professional development, you learn very quickly that knowledge is infinite. And you learn very quickly that because you can be wrong, you enter the room with a deep sense of humility that lets you sometimes allow people to challenge what is that and be willing to go with that if that's what you were and I and I think you know it inspires that sense of humility because I think sometimes you can arrogantly believe no this is it and we've got copy paste and that's it and I think the deep job of leaders is to keep never accepting ne never accepting just keep questioning it's one of my uh, nickisms that I live by is strong opinions loosely held that it's okay to have a firm opinion, but if the facts change, it's also okay to change your sure. opinion. And I think no ego and having a curious mind allows you to do those things. So the next question is, I know you have kids. How do you promote curiosity in their daily lives? I, I think more than anything is to, is to give them the gift that was given to me, which is to prod them and affirm their views. Sometimes I don't agree with their views, but their affirmation of that gives them the confidence to be able to say, yeah, I can pursue this, I can pursue that type of thinking, and to expose them to complexity at whatever appropriate age there is. To say to them, my son has a interesting, we went to the cricket once, and, and like, so for example, he'll look at the pitch and say to me, Daddy, why are there no brown players on the field? A complicated issue of <laughs> sport and transformation. Good question. <laughs> but I'm like, don't speak to me. Speak to the selector of yeah. SA cricket. Let them explain their position on this issue. Because at the end of the day, you might walk away from the conversation saying, I either agree with that guy, I agree with them, and and whatever. But but to give them the gift to question, to give them the gift to say, uncertainty is a natural part of life, and I think often. Yeah, just that space. So we let our kids do that. We give them as many opportunities to read and let them, just just as long as we give them, we don't try and give them fairy tales because I think sometimes there's a, 
fairy tale notion that we can give to kids that designs their world a particular way that stops them actually from asking questions that might not be consistent with the fairy tale. Very interesting. When, in more of a professional sense now, how would you say that curiosity led you to politics? I mean, you've, you've got a very specific career path. You, you're really young to be in the position that you're yeah. in. How did you get to where you are with curiosity in the back of your mind? I'd, I'd never wanted to become a politician. And in many ways, I've never held a view that says that being a politician is the pinnacle for me. I think that even now, uh, I've never settled, and therefore I've always held a view that in whatever context there is, you should be asking the permanent question, how can we reform this? Which, so coming into politics, I was doing an, an NGO trying to deliver, trying to really solve a very complicated social problem of sanitation and very quickly you realize that actually it's the municipality that can do that and so that said okay there's a system there that's contributing to a problem let's go engage it and then I did economics not because I wanted to become an economist but I always thought to myself how do we find a, a tax model that suits the poor rather than design so that wealthy people can can feel like they're doing something but it doesn't quite work and at the time when you look at the South African landscape for me, the question was, why should a poor person open a bank account and pay banking fees, as an example? But that was part of what leads you into that line of thinking and and never accepting status quo. So, so I think even in a political environment, I'm now questioning the question, is it is it always meant to be this way? Does it need reformation? Does it need to be, to, does it need an Uber? Does it need to be disrupted? So even... Currently now in my role, there's still a genuine question about this sector. And I'm, I might not, I've always never held the school of thought that human beings retire. You don't achieve, you keep evolving. Uh, you, because it, I don't think I'll ever get to a day where I've said I've achieved something. I think I'll just keep going and see what the next thing is because I think that's fueled my drive it's allowed me to be mentally active it's allowed me to be physically active and it's also allowed me professionally to keep saying even in my role I know I'm not going to die doing this so I'm going to give it my best shot and when I feel it's sufficient enough and something else grabs my energies in that sense and then I'll move on to that might sound non-committal but but in truth it's what's kept me driving for a form. Quite interested, you mentioned a few times uncertainty and it seems like you've curated what you choose to be curious about. Yeah. A lot of the questions I get as an entrepreneur from other entrepreneurs is how do you know when to walk away? Like how do you know when the business is dead? So it's kind of the same question. How do you know when you've followed an interest as deep as it'll go and you need to walk away from it? Often I, th I think you, you, you'll get to a point where, and I, and I think this is a psychometric issue combined with your own spiritual intuition with a sense of your own intellect around with that. I think at the intersect of those three things where I feel like I've done what I needed to do here and I'm satisfied that what I, I mean, what I set out to do, what interested me in this is what I wanted to do. When I get to that point, I know I'm sufficient enough to move away. I can feel that mentally this no longer challenge it doesn't stimulate me anymore i can feel that spiritually it doesn't engage me i can feel that 
just intellectually, there's no questions that I'm asking in this sector, then I know it's a good time to go. So success is not for me. Success or failure aren't the markers per se. I don't it's more about saturation. I yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't. I don't look around and think to myself, was this a successful project? The only success measure I take is whether I've given it everything that I could and contributed to it as I could, because all of those things are relative, right? They are what is successful to one might not be to another, and I've found that even projects that perhaps maybe others might have looked at when I moved from even a formalized parliamentary role to my current role, people would say, but that's a that's not financially a good model to go about it because Parliament pays your bills. Mm-hmm. And I would argue the case that I did what I needed to do and it's a good time to focus on something else. And, and it might not be financially rewarding at the time. That's not the only marker I look to an incident. So uh, looking at the question, I genuinely say, each of us have a range, have a band of contribution, have an ability which with we can contribute to a sector. Once that's saturated, I think you need to be able to move away because beyond that point, that people like myself, and I'm not prescribing this to everybody, people like myself start to do damage because it's a bit like playing Jenga. You build up the pieces and then you think for your own curiosity, you keep pulling them out. The danger with that is that you can break it to a point where the next people can't fix it with these. And so I think you become dangerous the longer you stay. Interesting. Focusing now on the concept of innovation, how would you define innovation, uh, either in your sector, in your life, generally? Like, what is your interpretation of it, and how does curiosity inform innovation? Look, I, I think there aren't too many new ideas under the sun. Funny enough, I'm, I'm a bit um, so. Even the term innovation sometimes can come across as as you need to find the next big thing. I, you know. Certainly, I think there are people who are gifted to do that, and they do that successfully. Uh, but I certainly think that in a leadership role, I've, I've always said to myself, for me, the innovative question I can do and contribute is to say, how do you take something that's working at 50% and make it perform at 70%? If I can achieve that and bring out that marked improvement, then I've innovated and we've driven something fresh in you. Because I sometimes think that uh, there is a dynamic upon which knowledge in the world is so powerful and so readily available. But if you're not careful, all of it can become too consuming that it leads to paralysis rather than to spurring on new actions. So if if I was coaching a tennis player, I'd say to them, Find out how we can make your forehand just that much better. You don't have to invent a new stroke. You just have to play that particular stroke better. And that for me has been inspired by that. It's, it's I've never sought to, if I'm going to change South Africa, which is my organizing mission, I think that there's some things that need radical reform, but it would be a question of that radicalism isn't a question of you know 100% or 180 degree turnaround. It's maybe sometimes... A, 30 degree adjustment that brings on a new change because changes changes become more you know when you when you look at something you look at a particular problem and you say how can we you look at it freshly and how do we change it how do we innovate in a particular space I think the fundamentals still remain you need to find the percentage of addition you can put on that so um, I wouldn't class myself in the school of thought of say oh well we're going to change everything I'm not going to invent I just know I'm going to take 
what is already available and make it 20-30% better and if I can do that I've served my purpose. So you don't want to reinvent democracy, you want to improve democracy as a Absolutely, like absolutely. Like a 1% compound change absolutely. every day leads to exponential correct. growth in a year. Correct, correct, correct. So I'm not, I'm not investing my time saying, you know, whatever. I'm just saying there are systems in place already, how do we make it better for the next generation? Because I've always reasoned from the school of thought that says that all we are are links in a chain and the best job we can do is to make sure that the chain is still intact and we can hand it over to the next ones better. Mm. So that's the paradox of the phrase new and improved can't be both. Either it's new or it's improved. Yeah. And that's what you're saying. You're looking to improve, not yeah. to create new. Yeah. 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 That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and whilst I accept that there is a group of people who are very good at the new, I'm not dismissive of that. I'm just trying to to say what is my range, as it were, and that's where I sit. So what are you curious about right now, today? You know what I'm genuinely worried about? I, I think government is going to... Governments and the idea of governance is something that is in the middle of an existential crisis, to be genuinely honest. Oh, I'd love for you to expand on that. I, I, love, I lie in bed and I think to myself, if the... In effect, if I think about most states and most how states are organized, there's an attraction to tax and there's a distribution of tax in whatever format. You can limit, you can increase, but that's the basic formation of it. And there are headwinds that are heading towards that, whether they're forms of nationalism, which is a, a kickback at some form of globalization, there are kickbacks that say, well, if our job is to collect tax, what happens in a world that's globalized and taxes no longer here. What happens when cryptocurrency comes in its fullest sense because equally so that will mean that the idea of a nation state is decentralized. Is decent, you know. Yeah. What happens when the banking sector ceases to exist as we know it because that is such a, I mean I'm thinking now for my kids. Do I open a savings account for them or do I not because I don't think they'll need any Would you buy Bitcoin for them today? Correct. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious about that because I think it, it, it's what gives me in some ways sleepless nights in some ways because I think that we're hurtling towards that and I, I actually don't know if there's a sufficient preparation around how we navigate through that. And so I'm curious about, curious about when you have this thought governance is at risk and the concept of governance globally, where do you start filling your curiosity? Like what do you read, who do you talk to, what's your process? Yeah, I, I have a whiteboard in my office at home where I will literally dump whatever question I've got on the table. Like I'll just write and just keep dumping them on the table. In fact, you can look on my phone. I often write, I have a folder that I put on there. What am I currently learning? Like what am I... And I learned this, you see, learnings. And so I'll put some genuine questions on there. Like what do I think of this? What do I make of that? Where do I... Where do I go? And then fortunately, maybe it's it's a bit like if you go to a party and you're miserable, it's likely you're going to attract miserable people. And if you go to a party and you're curious, it's likely you're going to attract people who are curious in similar fields. And, and I've had the great fortune in my life of being able to be attractive to people who think about some of these issues a lot and on a global scale and now form part of structured conversations that say, hey, we may not solve the world's problems, but please let's sit down and do it. But to me, the most powerful aspect of this is that it is, 
in some ways the life engine to everything else that you do. If I don't do this, I know the rest of my life collapses in a bizarre sort of way. I know when I'm not learning anything, when I'm not when I'm not thinking about things, when I'm not asking questions to myself and challenging that as a status quo, I, I can feel that the rest of my life is, even though it's not job related, it doesn't have to be. I don't, I don't, I don't genuinely think that that discipline matters more than sometimes the, sub, the substance. I think when you start to do that, you, you genuinely do. So I would go from what is a short note on here, what is, a, what is on my board at home, and who are the people I generally engage with on the very subject. So even though I haven't held a presidential office, I've had the opportunity to meet enough presidents and just be able to drill this question down and some successful business leaders, people who are honestly thinking about some of these complexities because, you know, there's nothing like waking up at midnight and thinking of, this is a genuine question. I'm going to go put out an email to a group of people that I know that I like. Say, hey, what do you think about this? What are you thinking about? Can you, can you help me? Can you point me in a direction? And I suppose that's been a, a found that that's kept me alive. If it, if it wasn't for that, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd have the energy to wake up tomorrow morning. It's a good segue into my last question. You mentioned people quite a lot in your last answer. Have you taken a lot of time and care to curate the people around you? And I know that a lot of people in positions of business power, political power, have yes people who just agree with everything they say. And it's very hard to be curious if everyone just agrees with your opinion. So how have you looked at the relationships in your life over the last decade to kind of lead you to the people that are around you now? I've fulfilled leadership roles. Some, some days <laughs> feels like uh, I wish I could just arrive in a meeting as an ordinary person and just make my five cents contribution and leave. You must be able to give expression to that. One of the great difficulties of it is, one, you must put yourself in context. You are not the expert on everything. You are just the leader. You will not have to be the smartest person in the room. You are just the leader. And I think if there's a genuine appreciation of it. I, I took something that you said, and I'd been working on it, but not as consciously as that. But here's some ground rules to help me work with you you know here's what i do here's what you do and you can decide whether that's helpful to you or not so so that's become something that's become a way of working for people and i expect that of every one of my team members but your day-to-day nine-to-five job is so rigid that i don't know if that will fulfill the entire space therefore you need to always, I have pending on which area of my life I want to focus on, we'll, we'll always find a coach or find a number of people I'll work with in that space. Because I used to play tennis as an example. And I've often thought, yes, Roger Federer is the world's greatest player in my humble opinion. But he has a number of people that he deals with coaching that look at his game. And I've always deliberately said to myself, I'm going to find people who can hold me true to that because... A personality in that sense can end up in a depressive state if there isn't someone saying half of the reason you are feeling like this is because you're not learning anything or you're not challenging yourself or you're not thinking hard enough about this thing. So I have a good team of guys that do that and I've, I've had to be more deliberate about it now. Previously it was just sporadic, it was a bit like let's get the Catholic nun invites me into this space and in high school I worked with a number of educators who would do this post-school you work with whatever the professional field you're in but now in a leadership business 
you have to have four or five people who, whose sole job not only is to say no to you, but to maybe ask you some very difficult questions that you may not yourself think about. And, uh, and, and now, most senior business executives would probably form part of either YPO or whatever the case might be. They have those kinds of clubs. That's not what I'm talking about specifically. I'm saying if you yourself consider yourself uh, someone who wants to do something serious in the world, get a board around you that you account to and someone who actually treats you like a project and you yourself must be able to reflect on yourself as a project. Otherwise, you mismanage yourself, you mismanage your life, you mismanage what's happening. So, you know, like now I'm thinking, uh, I mean, one of the things that's just socially, I've been thinking, there's a fad about diets. I think all of it is hogwash, personally, but I want to understand what, why. Yeah. There's now this new plant-based obsession and other people are obsessed about meat and banting and other people. Uh, I know some of it is just Trend. Trend, yeah. and some of it is commercialized. Yeah. yeah, it's a clever idea to tell people to start eating meat if we think we're going to increase revenue. And some of it is, you know, the, I mean, I when you talk about the five food types on your plate, that didn't emerge just out of nowhere. It came out of the fact that someone thought we should let Americans buy more potatoes. So, mm-hmm. so I think there is a part of me that always wants to think harder about what's going on and just keep an interest. Well, when you've learned more about diets, we can do another episode. Yeah, 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 I'm going to be interested. I'm going on to it, actually, to figure out what is this and blood types and all of that. But that's just, again, mm, it's got nothing yeah. to do with my day-to-day job. It's just it's just a discipline and a skill that just keeps you alive in your thinking. And I, I, I know I'm not being curious enough when all you can talk about is other people. Well, that's a great place for us to end. Thank you so much for your time. It's been incredible picking your curious brain and um, looking forward to chatting to you further. I look forward to the book because I'd love to hear what other people are doing. (laughs) Thank you, Missy. Thank you for listening to the Curious Cult podcast, the show where we talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. If you like this episode, please rate the show, like it, share it, and generally be kind to us and tell people about it. My goal is to spark curiosity that changes the world. And you can help by talking about the show to anyone who will listen. Stay curious. Until next time.